0: Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 42, Treehouse of Turkmenistan.
1: Grizzly greetings, mortals. Do not adjust your podcast engine. We are in control. I am am the the Titan Titan of Terror, Goroth Horrorons.
0: And I'm, am I again? The Sultan of Scream, Toon Chilamson.
1: And welcome to the other side, the plane of torment known only whispers as Retrospecticus. The Simpsons, modern history, and bone-chilling horror together for eternity. In each blood-curdling edition, we'll discuss an eerie episode of The Simpsons and a major ickle happening from the time the episode first scared in the boo You'll ghoul where we ghoul. Play God when we play God. Owe someone a coke when we owe someone a coke. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, And today, I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 7, Treehouse of Horror 2, which first aired, appropriately enough, on October 31st,
0: 1991. And continuing my mini-series of former Soviet states that no one has ever heard of, this week I'm turning my attention to Turkmenistan, who declared their independence from the Soviet Union on October 27th, 1991, just four days before Treehouse of Horror 2 first aired.
1: If you'd like to give us the Spanish ectoplasm, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, or be damned for all time. Or send us an electric eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So, as aforementioned, this first aired on Halloween 1991. But goreth, I hear you howl. What banshee whale topped ye British charts that week? And Rejoice! For Brian Adams' reign of horror has ended.
0: Hooray, finally. And
1: in his place are You Tomb with The Fly. You know, like the scary film of the same name. And yes, I'm quite glad I didn't have to make a second pun there. But not quite so glad to be talking about these lads. Hooray, it's you too, said no one after about 1992. The lead singer was not quite in peak charity hypocrite mode yet, so they were a lot more palatable at the stage we're talking about. Formed in Dublin in 1976, the band consists of Paul Bono Vox Hewson, The Edge, Larry Mullen Jr. and Adam Clayton, some of whom are more famous than others. After achieving peak critical success with 1987's acclaimed album The Joshua Tree, which also brought commercial success on both sides of the Atlantic, their follow-up Rattle and Hum was decried as pretentious and boring. You too? Pretentious and boring? Surely not. The Fly is the first single from their then-about-to-be-released album Achtung Baby, which probably explains it getting to number one. It's not the most commercial of offerings by any means, but the hype train was very much a-rolling. The rest is history, and you two would take the album on tour for the best part of two solid years, playing to 5.8 million concert goers and descending into self parody with stunts like calling a then jihadist Salman Rushdie live during a concert. One of a great many self indulgent, hand wringing acts for which Bono has become famous, which is why everyone thinks he's a massive twat. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 12.1, around 11.14 million homes. It finished 39th for the week and tied with In Living Colour again for Top Fox Show. And again, I call shenanigans, because there must have been some way of measuring that would have shown a clear winner out of those two. The production number for this episode was 8F02. And the writers were Deep Breath... (gasps) Sam Simon, as we discussed in episode 1, Simpsons Roasting on the Romanian Revolution. Al Jean and Mike Reese, discussed in episode 4, There's No Disgrace Like Manuel Noriega. John Schwarzwelder, from episode 5, Bart the First McDonald's in Moscow. George Mayer, from episode 11, The Crepes of Lothar de Maizier. And Jeff Martin, episode 19, Dead Webpage Society. Absolutely loads of people, no one knew to talk about.
0: Mm. just to just to reiterate that john schwartz welder doesn't exist oh, of course of course yeah, how remiss of there. me <laughs> um
1: the gravestones because we we obviously don't get a chalkboard with a gag on treehouse of horror the gravestones are bambi's mum oh too soon too soon <laughs> uh jim morrison replete with graffiti cajun cooking lose weight now ask me how and perhaps most controversial of all these days, Walt Disney, complete Ooh. with mouse ear carving on headstone and frozen tomb.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good stuff.
1: So, so Tom, just to, to diversify for a second, you being a sceptic, um, any, any truth to the uh, Walt Disney is frozen rumours that you know of?
0: To be honest, I have absolutely no idea. It's not really something... Um... That I put much thought into. I know that cryogenics is a thing. Uh, I think people with. I, I think it's something that people with far too much money do when they die. I'm pretty sure that if you've got enough money, you can uh, instruct a cryogenics lab to uh, freeze your body in the vague, vain hope that at some point in the distant future, technology will exist that will reanimate dead people. Um, So it wouldn't surprise me if Walt Disney tried to do something like that, but whether it's true or not, I have absolutely no idea. Well, he's certainly into animation. Uh, (laughs) Whether he's into
1: reanimation remains... No, that was a bad joke. Leave all of that in. Um, (laughs) Lame cryogenics jokes aside, what happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to have nightmares. Everyone but Homer returns from trick-or-treating, with Bart as an executioner, Maggie in a witch mask, Marge with Bride of Frankenstein's tricks in her hair, and Lisa as an enormous and unwieldy totem pole, which is a great sight gag. Mm-hmm. Ignoring Marge's sage advice on eating too much candy, Lisa, Bart and Homer gorge on their gains, and each will feel the psychological horror of a bad dream ere the eve is out. And first to feel the tentacles of terror squeeze tight her mind? Why, that would be one Lisa Simpson... And we enter Lisa's Nightmare. As far as I can tell, the official names of these segments are just Lisa's Nightmare, Bart's Nightmare, and Homer's Nightmare. But this tale is more well known, at least in fan circles, as The Monkey's Paw. Dateline, Marrakesh, Morocco. Home of Princess Grace, apparently. And despite the vendors' pleas for caution, Homer purchases a monkey's paw, which is guaranteed to bring grave misfortune with every wish. Having convinced customs to look the other way for two whole American dollars, the family ponder what they should wish for first, until Maggie grabs the paw and wishes for a new pacifier. One down, three to go. Bart wishes for the family to be rich and famous, and they are. But everyone is sick of their overexposure as a delightfully meta nod to Bartmania. So Lisa selfishly wishes for world peace, which at least makes them popular again. Until the consequence of their farewell to arms is the invasion of Earth by Kagan Kodos's race, who are able to achieve all of that with a club since there's no weapons left. A frustrated homer tries his very best to word a wish so specifically that it cannot possibly go wrong. Tom, can you remember that wording?
0: Yeah, he wants a turkey sandwich on rye bread with... Oh God! What does he want after that? Like lettuce, mayonnaise, uh, and he doesn't want any mutant turkeys. Doesn't want to turn into a turkey himself. That's that's all I've got.
1: Okay, okay. So it was mustard rather than mayonnaise, but, but you know you're absolutely on point with this one. Uh, he also doesn't want any other weird surprises. Mm-hmm. But when Homer eats the sandwich, he discovers its terrible secret. Hmm. Not bad. Nice hot mustard, good bread. Turkey's a little dry. The turkey's a little dry? Oh, foul, accursed thing. What demon from the depths of hell created thee? <laughs> and he throws the paw out on the strength of some dry turkey. Um, Ned picks it up and has a try for himself. His first wish is for the aliens to be gone. And sure enough, Mo chases them off with a board with a nail through it. Then he wishes for a better house and gets a grand castle. Bizarrely, Ned's wishes seem to have no ironic consequences. So I prefer to think he got horribly murdered off screen. (laughs) Lisa wakes from her dream and asks Bart if she can share his bed. For a small payment of but one candy necklace, the deal is done. And Bart gets back to sleep. But also into Bart's nightmare, the Bart Zone. And I quote as it's really well done. Presented for your consideration, Springfield, an average little town with a not-so-average monster. The people of Springfield have to make sure they think happy thoughts and say happy things, because this particular monster can read minds, and if displeased, can turn people into grotesque walking terrors. And did I mention to you that the monster is a ten-year-old boy? Quite a twist, huh? Bet you didn't see that one coming. So, Bart can manipulate reality, Mad Jim Jasper style. He changes the cat into a strange fire-breathing umbrella-tailed abomination and the name of the USA to Bonerland via a school <laughs> test. We then get perhaps the best mo prank call of all time. Uh, hey, everybody. I'm a stupid moron with an ugly face and big butt and my butt smells and I like to kiss my own butt. This one's a visual spectacle rather than anything that bears description in my usual style, hence the large amount of quotes. But basically, Bart annoys Homer, and when Homer tries to kill Bart, Bart turns him into a jack-in-the-box. Then the true horror arrives, as Dr. Marvin Munro makes a never-welcome appearance, and father and son start bonding, assumedly to get away from him as quickly as possible. (laughs) Once reconciled, Homer is changed back to his usual self, and the two say, I love you, causing Bart to wake screaming and the two children to crowd into their parents' bed. This, of course, sets up for Homer's nightmare. If I only had a brain. As he realises there's only a few hours until work. And dreams he is there, albeit still sleeping. Although, as Burns and Smithers note through the CCTV, many of their other employees are being unproductive as well. Feeling this requires an example firing, they pick Homer. Mr Burns dreams of a worker that cannot fall to such corruption and reveals a robot body he has built that requires a human brain. Meanwhile, Homer takes a job as a gravedigger and he again goes to sleep on his shift, this time in a grave. And Burns and Smithers, thinking he's dead and not really particularly caring when they find out he's alive, rob his body from the graveyard and remove his brain transplanting it to the robot body after some Davy Crockett-based hijinks. Unfortunately, it turns out that the brain is pretty important, and this home automaton has the same gluttonous and slothful drives as he did as a human, driving Burns to tears. He's ready to pull the plug, but Smithers convinces him to return Homer's brain to his body, bringing him back to life and costing Mr Burns a Coke. Burns attacks the now empty robot, but it falls and crushes him. With his last breath, he directs Smithers to his surgical tools. And Homer apparently wakes from the nightmare screaming, only to discover that Mr. Burns's head has been grafted to his shoulder. Next week, can Homer make it to the all-you-can-eat spaghetti dinner and get Mr. Burns to the reception for Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands? Find out on The Simpsons. <laughs>
0: I love that as a reference Queen Beatrix of Benevolence. That's awesome.
1: So this is um, this is good. Uh, don't get me wrong, it is good. But recently gone through uh, with the with the help of Disney Disney Plus, all of the Treehouse of Horrors, and um, this one doesn't stand out in that field. It obviously does at the point we are at now because there's only been two of them, but it, it neither has a sort of a a high standout segment like the Raven, or a consistently good three segments like, um, say, the one with Kag and Kodos um, in the American election. <laughs> Should remember which one that is. I think it's Treehouse of Horror Seven, that one. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. It, it's good. I know it's good, but it's just kind of in, in that particular canon, it's not a standout for me. What did you reckon?
0: Well, yeah, I I, I enjoyed aspects of it i mean the last one i think is a is is a little bit on the weak side um but um i enjoyed the depiction of marrakesh because i've been to marrakesh and it's possibly the worst holiday i've ever had um i, I like the monkey port and that has really stuck in people's imaginations because because that, that's in the memeable moment i've going to be talking about quite soon um but yeah yeah as you say it's good not great. So would you like some did you knows? Mm hmm.
1: Lisa's nightmare is based on the short story. The monkey's paw duh, uh, by WW w. Jacobs, which has been adapted into just about everything. Really? You can't move for monkey's paws parodies, um, and homages out there. So I'm not going to waste all of our time by listing them, but yeah, just, you know, throw a rock in popular entertainment and you will hit a monkey's paw. Um, <laughs> Bart's Nightmare is, of course, based on a Twilight Zone episode, because we have to have at least one of those every time. Mm -hmm. This one is A Good Life, originally aired in 1961 and adapted from the 1953 short story It's A Good Life by Jerome Bixby. That episode featured Cloris Leachman, who we actually discussed fairly recently when she appeared as Mrs. Glick in Season 2, Episode 21, Three Men and a Comic Book. Homer's Nightmare has a few different reference points, including The Wizard of Oz and Frankenstein. And this is the only Treehouse of Horror to date that does not display the segment titles at the start of each story. Which, considering there's been 28
0: since, that's that's quite a record. So, Tom, memeable moments. Yes. Now, I counted three. So, we've already talked about the monkeys, paw. Uh, I saw an example of that not that long ago um now this this might take a little bit of explaining so uh, there's a football team soccer team uh called newcastle united and for the last 10 years or so they've been owned by this billionaire called mike ashley and he owns this big chain of uh, sports retailers called sports direct and he's widely reviled for being a big fat bastard basically if he was if there was a film about him he'd be played by ray winston but Newcastle are in the middle of an attempted takeover. There've been, And there have been quite a few of those over the years, so people aren't really getting their hopes up. But the people behind the takeover are basically the Saudi Arabian government. And Saudi Arabia has an awful human rights record, and it's rather fond of uh, beheading people in public. So someone came up with a meme, uh, which was Lisa in Newcastle gear, saying... I wish that Mike Ashley didn't own Newcastle United. So, you know, it's a really good, be careful what you wish for type thing. Uh, So second one, and it gives me a chance to say it. I'm a stupid boron with a big butt. My butt smells and I like to kiss my own butt, Uh, which is, which is just rolled out whenever you need something very long and funny, basically. Pretty certain. I've seen uh, Boris Johnson's
1: face on that in the last couple of weeks, uh, (laughs) repeatedly for, for many incidents.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm. and then there's this last one which is a bit meta but it's bash his head in with a chair now the reason i've included that is because there's a very famous scene in a later episode where luan houghton is going out with one of the american gladiators pyro i think and and pyro says look break a chair on my back if you want which bart then does and then you have the next scene homer in the bath and bart just suddenly appears into the shot and chucks a chair on his back uh, to which homer screams in agony and that homer in the bath being hit on the chair is used in countless memes but if you want the other way around if you want homer trying to hit bart with a chair then you go to that scene you go to bash his head in with a chair so it's used a lot more than you might think but it's definitely there
1: yeah, it's more of a response meme to the, the, the previous one, that one, isn't it? It's uh, I, I watched that. That's from A uh, Millhouse Divided in season eight. Um, I do not know the episode uh, number off the top of my head. So that's me failing as a podcast presenter once again. However, uh, I watched that scene recently and it's still funny. After all this time, after all, all those views, just, just, Bart just walks in, cracks him with a chair, Homer starts screaming. It's, it, just it had me in stitches it really shouldn't after all these years but it's just it's just a classic moment of slapstick that uh, it i think it's I think it's the part of me that still still howls at bottom to this day uh, <laughs> really uh, really enjoys that excellent okay well the, the meme cab was certainly up from last week so uh, that's uh, that's all good uh, and now you're going to take us to um to a former soviet uh, republic
0: yep another one so Turkmenistan so it's a country in Central Asia one of the many stans in the region and yes it's yet another former Soviet state it's not that far from some of the other former Soviet countries that I've already talked about namely Georgia in episode 31 brush with Georgia and Azerbaijan in episode 40 Azerbaijan defined but where exactly is Turkmenistan well oddly enough for a country that used to be part of the Soviet Union it doesn't border Russia Exactly where it is isn't that easy to pinpoint, so I'll start with Turkey, everyone knows where Turkey is, and go east. So to the northeast of Turkey is the Caucasus region, with the smallish countries of Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is on the west coast of the Caspian Sea, with its capital Baku being a port on it. If you get a ferry and sail east across the Caspian Sea, you get to Turkmenbashi, which is Turkmenistan's main port on the Caspian Sea. Turkmenistan is kind of a rectangular country and to the northwest is Kazakhstan which also borders the Caspian. Directly north is Uzbekistan. So to the southeast is Afghanistan and to the southwest is Iran. Not far from the border with Iran and roughly in the middle of the country you will find the capital of Turkmenistan which is Ashgabat. In terms of ancient history not a huge amount is known about who settled in the region of Turkmenistan. Roughly 3,000 years ago to the east of the country, uh, was believed to have been settled by people from what's known as the Bactria-Margiana Archaeological Complex, or BMAC for short. And the first really famous name to be involved in Turkmenistan is Alexander the Great, who conquered the region in 330 BC. Along the Murgab River, Alexander founded a city and named it Arthur himself, calling it Alexandria, so not the same as the one in Egypt, but same name. Over the years, it became an important Silk Road city, and nowadays it's known as Mary. And I did look up the pronunciation, it's M-A-R-Y, from what I can work out, it's pronounced Mary. After Alexander the Great died, the Seleucids took over. Now remember that Turkmenistan is on the other side of the Caspian from Azerbaijan, so a lot of these names might sound pretty familiar. So the Parthians became independent from the Seleucids and founded the city of Nisa in around 200 BC. They ruled their empire from it, and it's just 20 kilometers away from modern-day Ashgabat and a lot of the ruins are still there and it's uh, it's a bit of a tourist spot. So by the 4th century AD the Parthians had given way to the Sassanids who ruled Persia. They were in turn challenged by a series of tribes who were known by the catchily titled Proto-Turkic Tribal Confederation. So by around 600 AD the cities of Merv and Nisa had become important in sericulture, or the rearing of silkworms. These cities became important stops on the Silk Road, linking Baghdad with the Tang dynasty in China. So shortly afterwards, the region came under the control of the first Islamic caliphate and Islam was introduced to the region. Merv hit the headlines in 748 AD, but the Persian general Abu Muslim declared the Abbasid caliphate in the city. The Abbasids marched south, took Baghdad and overthrew the Umayyad caliphate. So, you know, you had You had a few major caliphates in the early Islamic world, and one of them was started in Turkmenistan. So, Arab rule came to an end in Central Asia in 873, when the Safarid Persians conquered the region. During their rule, Merv became an important seat of learning, and any scholar hailing from Merv was called a Mawazi. However, Safarid rule didn't last, and they were soon overthrown by another Persian empire, this one being the Samanids in 901. Okay, the next bunch of people should sound very familiar because it's the Seljuks. They came from the north and took over a lot of the former Arab territories, including the regions of what are now Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan. In fact, the modern languages of Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan both descend from Seljuk Turkish languages. The Seljuks were very important because they conquered Baghdad. And as such, they had a hold on a big chunk of the Islamic world. From around 1150 onwards, the Seljuk Empire started to crumble. By this time, the Turkmen had evolved as an independent tribal federation, and the beginnings of modern-day Turkmenistan were appearing. In 1221, the Mongols showed up. They were disastrous for Baghdad, and they were disastrous for the Turkmen too. They sacked the city of Merv and killed everyone they could find living there. They also destroyed all the farms and irrigation systems, just to be sure. In the centuries that followed, the areas that the Mongols devastated were slowly repopulated by Turkic people who survived the massacre. And the region was then fought over by various powers, including Iran, Kiva, Bukhara, and Afghanistan. In the 19th century, the Russians moved in and attempted to colonize the region. In 1869, they established a port on the Caspian Sea that they called Krasnovodsk. This would eventually go on to become the port of Bashi. The Turkmen were allied with the Kiva and Bukhara Khanates who were fighting Russian rule. As a result, the Russians were pretty merciless. In the 1880 Battle of Gioctepe, just outside Ashgabat, the Russians attacked a fortress held by the Turkmen. The Russians lost a few hundred men, while Turkmen losses were estimated at 20,000. In 1881, the now capital of Ashgabat was founded as a Russian fort. As they expanded south, the Russians almost came to war with Britain. The Russians were going so far south that they almost reached Afghanistan. They took the border fort of Panjde, and the British saw that as a threat to both Afghanistan and the British Raj, otherwise known as India, of course. However, the Tsar Alexander III opened up a dialogue with the British, and they agreed not to go to war, instead set- setting up a buffer zone in Central Asia. History remembers this as the Panjdeh incident. And I hope I'm saying that right. Should have put in my usual warnings for mangling pronunciations, but there we are. So by 1894, Imperial Russia had conquered most of modern-day Turkmenistan. And Turkmenistan proved important to the Russians as it played host to the Trans-Caspian Railway. This railway started at Krasnovodsk and linked the region to the European part of Russia, making it a lot easier for Russian settlers to travel to the area. This saw an increase in the Russian population of towns like Ashgabat. Turkmenistan was considered a distant outpost of the Russian Empire and not a huge amount happened there. When the October Revolution of 1917 rolled around, Ashgabat became a base for Russian anti-Bolshevik forces. However, the Bolsheviks had a stronghold in Tashkent, the capital of modern day Uzbekistan. These Bolsheviks were able to take control of Ashgabat in the summer of 1918, and they formed a Soviet there. They were soon challenged by the forces of Junaid Khan, a Turkmen military leader, and Russian forces sympathetic to the old regime. They drove the communists out and declared the independent state of Transcaspia. This didn't last long as the Red Army moved in to take control of the region. The resistance movement, known as the Basmachi, stood up to the Red Army until 1923, when all remaining members fled across the border to Iran. With Stalin firmly in control of the Soviet Union, the Turkmen Soviet Socialist Republic, sometimes known as Turkmenia, was established in 1924. And from what I can work out, Turkmenistan under Soviet rule was remarkably stable, there wasn't much of an independence movement like in the Baltics, and the leadership was pretty stable too. Having said that, Ashgabat suffered a devastating earthquake in 1948, which killed tens of thousands. And Soviet investment in Turkmenistan was low compared to other regions. In the 1950s, they built the Karakum Canal, the construction of which was only completed in 1988. It's over 850 miles long. The problem with it is that it drains the Amuduria River And it opened up huge tracts of land, making them suitable for growing cotton. The Soviets encouraged this monoculture, and today cotton is a major part of the economy of Turkmenistan. But needless to say, draining that much water from a river caused a huge ecological disaster, causing the disappearance of the Aral Sea. The Aral Sea is a bit of a misnomer because it's a a big inland lake. Or it was until this canal drained the lake. They managed to completely wipe a whole lake off the map. It's quite extraordinary
1: that's quite something um Mm. i'm assuming that
0: wasn't intentional no i don't think so Mm. anyway so in the 60s the doula tabad gas field was discovered it was absolutely huge estimated to contain 62 trillion cubic feet of natural gas during soviet times exploitation of it was slow with production not starting until 1982 during its development, the Soviets found a crater with some gas seeping out of it. In order to try and make it safe, they tried to burn off the excess gas by setting fire to it. Trouble is, that fire has been burning ever since. And it shows no sign of going out. It's called the wow. Vaz- hmm. It's called the DeVaza Gas Crater, otherwise known as the Door to Hell. It's
1: quite an appropriate one to be talking about in the Treehouse of Horror episode then. Yeah, um, yeah
0: especially especially at night it's just a crater full of fire basically um so apparently the government is trying to make it a tourist attraction so <laughs> so if, if you want you can go there and spend the night there and you know just warm yourself by the fire
1: <laughs> again i got burnt at the door to hell uh, t-shirt yeah. let's see.
0: so um, staying in the 80s, uh, as we all know, Mikhail Gorbachev became leader of the Soviet Union and started to implement his policies of glasnost and perestroika. Part of this was a big anti-corruption drive that turned its attentions on Turkmenistan. And I'm never going to be able to pr- pronounce this. Mohammed Nassar Gaporov had been the head of the Communist Party of Turkmenistan since 1969. But Gorbachev removed him from his post after he found that he had been embezzling money from the cotton industry. He was replaced by Sapuramat Niazov, a man who would dominate Turkmenistan until he died in 2006. And Niazov was a communist hardliner who wanted to see the old communist order maintained. He was therefore a supporter of the August coup against Gorbachev. However, once the writing was on the wall and it became clear that the Soviet Union wasn't going to stick together in any form, he made preparations for Turkmenistan to become an independent country. In August of 1991, the Turkmen Communist Party met and decided to slowly remould itself into the Turkmenistan Democratic Party, a process that wouldn't be completed until 1992. On October 27, 1991, just four days before Treehouse of Horror II first aired, Turkmenistan declared its independence from the USSR, with Niyazov leading a transitional government. On June 21, 1992, Turkmenistan held a presidential election in which Niyazov was the only candidate. He gave himself the bombastic title of Turkmen Bashi, which roughly translates as the leader of all Turkmen. He began to exploit the huge oil and gas wealth of his country, taking billions for himself and his family while heading up one of the most repressive regimes in the world. He took a note out of Stalin's book and set up a cult of personality whose extremes were probably only rivaled by that of North Korea. He closed all of the internet cafes in the country, as well as all hospitals outside of Ashgabat, saying if people were ill, they could go to Ashgabat for treatment. And Niazov wrote a book called The Runama, whose title translates as The Book of the Soul. It contains poems, Niazov's autobiography, and passages on Turkmen history, all very much revisionist glorifications. It was published in 2001, and it soon became essential reading, as Turkmen couldn't get a driving license without passing a test on its contents. In 2004, it was taught in school at the expense of subjects such as sports and foreign languages, and students were expected to memorise it disrespecting the book was tantamount to disrespecting the president himself and could be punished by torture. In 2005, the Renama reached new heights. The Turkmen government hired a Russian Dnieper-boosted rocket, put a copy of the book inside it, and launched it from the Baikonur launch site in Kazakhstan. The capsule, which contains the book and the flag of Turkmenistan, is expected to orbit the Earth for 150 years. So yes, for some reason, there is a copy of the Renama orbiting around the Earth now.
1: I thought you were going to say they'd launched it into deep space. If if that overtakes Voyager, they could be the first <laughs> thing that uh, extraterrestrial
0: life finds of the human race. It could be, yeah. Think of that. So Niazov's rule was notable for the number of decrees he made, mostly based on his personal preferences. They include renaming months of the year after himself and his family, banning the use of lip syncing as he thought it was bad for music. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's brilliant. So oh, I love that. I absolutely love that.
0: Yep. Yeah, so Milli Vanilli banned in Turkmenistan. Um, he also banned dogs from Ashgabat because he thought they smelled. Um, <laughs> he he uh, he quit smoking in the mid nineties and therefore banned smoking because he thought it would be good for everyone. He outlawed ballet, opera, and circuses because they were un-Turkmen-like. <laughs> He also decreed that men shouldn't have beards, and I could not find a reason for that whatsoever. He just decided he didn't like beards. Newsreaders were banned from wearing makeup because he was having difficulty telling men and women apart. Okay.
1: That's that's really more his problem, I would think. Um,
0: well he's, exactly. can't imagine
1: exactly. that being universal.
0: So. Exactly. But, but, it, but it you know, it illustrates just what sort of a man he was. And finally Uh, he replaced the Turkmen word for bread with the name of his mother. So bakeries had to sell loaves of the president's mother. Fair dues.
1: Uh, Those are exactly the kind of um, petty things that I would do if handed absolute power, so (laughs) I I can't really criticise.
0: Well, probably his most famous decree was that before each news broadcast, and after, the presenter had to take an oath that if they slandered the president, they could expect their tongue to shrivel up and fall out. (laughs) <laughs> which i'm guessing the the secret police would uh, make sure of probably yeah so niazov's most egregious extravagance was the 12 million dollar gold statue of himself which adorned ashgabat central square on the top of their neutrality monument <laughs> during the day during the day it rotated so that it was always facing the sun of, of course of course yeah, yeah. um yeah, they have a neutrality monument because Niazov practiced this policy of neut- neutrality. So they never supported anyone in war. They never tried to invade any other's territory. Yeah, neutrality was what he brought to the country, basically, as, as well as all the other stuff. On December 21st, 2006, state media announced that Niazov had died of a heart attack, leaving no clear successor. According to the constitution, Geldi Atiu the chair of the national assembly should have taken over but he was arrested the same day accused of harassing his daughter-in-law and pushing her to commit suicide instead the deputy prime minister gerbanguli birdie muhammadow which i have written phonetically <laughs> was named acting president Birdi muhammadow had an odd route to power just want to see if, see if you can guess what his first job at the university was Pensions administrator? That was certainly mine. Uh, Pensions administrator? It's not a bad guess. Uh, he, he, he was a dentist. Oh, OK. So he started off as a dentist, graduating from the Turkmen State Medical Institute in 1972, and he later completed a PhD in Moscow. In 1995, Niazov made him the state's head dentist. And two years later, he became the country's Minister of Health. Obviously. Yep, yep. And in 2001, he took up a title which was the equivalent of vice president. And early in 2007, Berdimu Hamadaw won an election whose fairness was disputed by outside observers. Since then, the eccentricities of the Yazov era have been rolled back somewhat, but the Turkmenistan regime remains repressive. He has since won elections in 2012 and 2017, both by suspiciously high margins. Nowadays, Turkmenistan is one of the least visited countries in the world, with just 6,000 people making the trip in 2016. Those that do are treated to some pretty strange sights. The capital, Ashgabat, being next to the Karakum Desert, is very hot during the daytime, so it's practically deserted. Most of the buildings in the city centre are very new, clean, and constructed out of imported white marble. I mean, I've seen pictures of it, and it looks, well, it looks like Scientology on steroids, The buildings are pristine and they've all got something that marks them out. For example, the foreign ministry is topped with a giant globe with Turkmenistan highlighted in gold. There's also the wedding palace, which is topped by a 32-metre disco ball encased in a cube made out of eight-pointed stars. There's also the Alem Centre, which hosts the world's largest ferris wheel. And it looks like one of those old mantelpiece clocks only massive and white and gold. It's Honestly, it's so weird to look at. And Turkmenistan hosted the 2017 Asian Games, and they had a whole sports complex built for it, including a brand new stadium with an enormous decorative horse looking over one of the stands. So that's Turkmenistan, an authoritarian country with a huge amount of wealth concentrated in the hands of a few. Fun, eh? Oh, I mean, I, I feel bad for laughing
1: throughout much of that, but You can't, you can't take it seriously, and yeah, it's very serious business. Mm. That's you know, just uh, that somebody can can stamp their eccentricities on a on a country to that extent is just it's just bizarre, absolutely bizarre. But I had a challenge laid before me by you, Tom, which was (laughs) to find find Turkmenistan in The Simpsons, and I'm very glad that you gave me a week's run up to this as well. Um, (laughs) Slightly ruins the magic for the people at home, but um, I have found. Not one, but two instances where Turkmenistan is mentioned in The Simpsons. What? Are you ready for this? So, season 14, episode 20, Break My Wife, Please. I watched it recently. It is a duff episode. But uh, in that, Homer sings a song called I Love to Walk because he's had his driving license taken off him. And in that, he mentions walking to Turkmenistan. And he is challenged by two stereotypical Turkmenistanis uh, to walk to Turkmenistan, which he does. Do you know what? It would be too difficult for me to describe how this sequence works. But let's just say it's a a magical musical sequence, uh, which features Turkmenistan and Steve Buscemi for some reason. And secondly, season 21, episode 15, Stealing First Base features Michelle Obama at a time when she was first lady. But note, not President Obama, who was running the country like Tony Blair should have been doing during the Regina monologues. <laughs> um And it is noted that uh, she flew in from Turkmenistan to visit Lisa. So there we okay. go. Okay. Two mentions of Turkmenistan, but I'll be—I you know—I I have to give you You're quite right. I couldn't find Turkmenistan itself in The Simpsons, but I did find more references to it than i could possibly have expected
0: that's that's some very impressive knowledge sorry you had to swim through the cesspool of later simpsons to find it but uh, <laughs> but that that is good stuff and on that
1: bombshell of unexpected references don't forget that you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on spotify apple podcasts and stitcher i haven't done a special horror version of this because i think everyone's probably a bit bored of that by now but don't worry you're at least a season away from having to probably me doing that again and you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospectacus, email us at podcast at retrospectacus.org, and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Also, please don't shop me to Disney for all the quoting I did earlier. It's probably fair use, but let's be careful, eh? Let's be careful. Thanks for listening, and keep watching the skis. I mean, skies. Bye, everyone. Bye. I'm <laughs> not